You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to The Corbett Report Podcast. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan here on this fourth day of January 2013. Welcome to episode 252 of the Corbett Report podcast, Meet Zbigniew Brzezinski, Conspiracy Theorist. Now, as we all know from our steady diet of mainstream mouthpiece establishment puppet programming and indoctrination over the years, the worst charge that can ever be leveled against anyone in our society is to merely call them a conspiracy theorist. There has been an explosion of conspiracy theories flying fast and furious over the internet. Some believe that the death of Osama bin Laden was a ruse all to help President Obama get reelected, and that the tornado that killed more than 120 people in Missouri this week was the result of an obscure military-backed research program in Alaska. You know, the Fast and the Furious program was this uh, program that got out of control where uh, we let 2,000 guns basically go across the border and into the hands of the Mexican drug cartel. Everybody's agreed that it was a disastrous program. We were one of the first shows that talked about what a clownish move that was. Uh, They were supposed to track him and they did. Now, we all agree on that, but uh, apparently, uh, Darrell Issa and the Republicans believe that there is a cover-up of who knew what, when, about the Fast and the Furious program. And apparently there are conspiracy uh, rumors and theories afoot as to why they're doing this cover-up, why they did the Fast and the Furious program in the first place. So when you talk about lunatic conspiracy theories, well, obviously you go to Fox. This bullshit episode is filled with conspiracy theory whack jobs who are ludicrous, offensive, and sadly misguided all at once. We'll be the guy who thinks 9-11 was a government plot. What a f***ing bag. And this guy is s***ier and crazier. We'll meet this loon who says we never landed on the moon. We'll also meet a crazy-ass radio DJ, a self-proclaimed expert on the JFK assassination, and a couple of drunks in a bar. What more could you ask for? When the president took time, and he went into both of these issues in some detail, he took time to debunk both 9-11 conspiracists and deniers of the Holocaust, and then announced pointedly that he was on his way to Buchenwald next. Is there a reason to believe that he thinks that those issues are holding back political progress, that those specific sort of conspiracies and misconceptions about modern political history are part of the problem in terms of moving forward? There's no doubt that in recent years, both many Americans viewed the world in very, very skewed fashion. And many outside of America had a totally conspiratorial view of America, including even the idea that 9-11 was somehow or other a put-up job that really wasn't done by Osama bin Laden and others. Etc., etc., etc. Of course, I could go on and on with such clips, but I don't think we need to belabor the point. The point being that there are certain boundaries to acceptable discourse, and any time anyone dares to breach those boundaries and stray into any areas of discourse that is that makes the establishment uncomfortable, they can be labeled conspiracy theorists, and thus anything they have to say, regardless of the veracity of what they have to say, can be discredited by default. 
Now, of course, this is just a mere rhetorical trick, and it is no more or no less than a trick. And we could point out all the various ways that it is, in fact, just a rhetorical trick. We could talk about how it's used as a pejorative, and yet in its normative sense, it is perfectly apt uh, to describe some of the things that are part of that establishment media discourse. For example, the official story of 9-11 is a conspiracy theory, a theory about the conspiracy of Al-Qaeda. Or we could talk about the actual criminal act of conspiracy, which is in the law books, and the fact that, by default, all police detectives and anyone charged with trying to solve a crime has to be a conspiracy theorist in order to come up with an idea of how the crime took place, assuming it involved more than one person. Or we can talk about the ways that this label itself was developed and then put into the media discourse, specifically in the wake of the Warren Commission and the widespread public reaction against that. We've talked about all of these issues before on this program, and we've belabored the point to some degree, so people who are interested in that can go back, for example, in the archives to episode 50 of this podcast, The Other C-Word, where we explored this term and its history and its uses in some degree of detail. But Let's not do that today. Let's take at face value this term as it is used by the establishment to try to discredit people. And I think we all broadly understand the types of things which are decried as conspiracy theories, theories and which makes one a conspiracy theorist to be derided. But let's, let's outline and flesh some of that out, and let's use some examples from that final figure in that uh, clip collection that we just watched that I'm sure more of the, some of the more attentive viewers and listeners out there might have caught. That was, of course, Zbigniew Brzezinski talking to none other than Rachel Maddow. And Zbigniew Brzezinski, of course, a very famous Polish-American uh, professor of political science and geostrategy who, of course, served as the national security advisor to Jimmy Carter from 1977 to 1981. He's the author of numerous books and appears quite frequently in the media to talk about geostrategy and geopolitics. So he's probably familiar to many of the people in the audience, even people who are not familiar with him from our previous episodes where we've looked at him and his work. But let's, um, let's today flesh out this idea of what is a conspiracy theorist, and let's see if perhaps Zbigniew Brzezinski actually falls into that category. So first of all, let's, let's outline some of the things that most conspiracy theorists adhere to. For example, conspiracy theorists posit that secretive international organizations of interests exert both control in a blatant and overt sense and through covert and subtle means in the course of world politics. We've also seen a lot of the friendship between Prince Bandar and George Herbert Walker Bush, and that Bush one, President Bush one, sent Prince Bandar to see his son in 1999 to advise him on running for the presidency. How, how about a relationship like that? Is it too close or is that okay? Well, I don't honestly know the details, and I don't know how important that advice was. Uh, I, I'm not aware of the fact that the current president was somehow or other resistant to the idea of running for the presidency. Uh, so I just don't know whether those facts are really valid even. Well, the reason I bring it up, if you've ever heard any of our call-in shows, you know that we have people that uh, think about the conspiracy theories mm -hmm. of people like you. Uh, you would be a poster child for these people because you have served on the board of the Council on Foreign Relations. 
you started helped start the Trilateral Commission, and you've been to the Bilderberger groups. Well, yes, I haven't done those for years, so that's partial redemption, I suppose. But uh, otherwise, yes. But what is, what is belonging to all those groups? We talked about the Trilateral Commission when you were here in 1989. But what about the association with that? Is there too, are people too close in this world, uh, people in business, too close to the, the governments? Well, you know, there, there is such a thing as insidious influence. And the question is, how does it operate? Does it involve bribery? And does it involve some sort of psychological domination of individuals? I don't believe in this notion of some sort of secret societies controlling people. But of course, in any political system, there are sort of over-the-table and under-the-table arrangements. As far as the organizations that you have mentioned, they're all on top of the table organizations. We know what they are, we know what they do. We probably exaggerate their influence in many cases, but most important of all, they operate overtly. Anybody who wants to know what the Council of Foreign Relations does can very easily find out. And once that person finds out, they'll probably discover that it really doesn't run the world, but often makes very useful recommendations. For example, you know, we're all confronting the problem of Iran. Well, I don't know, maybe this will reinforce the conspiracy theories, but two years ago, I co-directed a study on U.S. policy towards Iran for the Council on Foreign Relations. I think still a very good study. I said I co-directed. Who was the other co-chairman? Robert Gates, currently the Secretary of Defense. Now, on the one hand, maybe that reinforces the conspiracy theory that somehow or other <laughs> we're pulling the strings from behind the scene. But alternatively, maybe it tells you something, namely that this is an open process. Anyone can get those recommendations, read them, know what they are, can assess them whether they stand the test of time or not. I think that's all to the good. Organizations of interest wielding covert power over world politics? All right, check mark on that one. Well, conspiracy theorists also like to talk about false flag terrorism. That is to say, the staging or manipulation of terrorist events in order to blame terrorist events on political enemies in order to justify wars of aggression. For example, what happened on 9-11-2001. And some conspiracy theorists even posit that the most likely way that a war with Iran will be kicked off in the future, should that occur, is through a staged terrorist incident in the United States. A plausible scenario for a military collision with Iran involves Iraqi failure to meet the benchmarks, followed by accusations of Iranian responsibility for the failure, then by some provocation in Iraq or a terrorist act in the United States blamed on Iran, culminating in a quote-unquote defensive U.S. military action against Iran that plunges a lonely America into a spreading and deepening quagmire, eventually ranging across Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. False flag terrorism, check. 
Well, conspiracy theorists also like to theorize that popular narratives, such as the narrative that WikiLeaks is leaking vital government secrets and there's just nothing that the government can do about it, provide convenient vehicles for intelligence agencies to covertly manipulate public opinion and perception from behind the scenes. What, it, what are you worried about with regard to the, to the it's knowledge? It's not a question of worry. It's rather a question of whether WikiLeaks are being manipulated by interested parties that want to either complicate our relationship with other governments or want to undermine some governments. Because some of these items that are being emphasized and have surfaced are very pointed. And I wonder whether, in fact, there aren't some operations internationally, intelligence services, that are feeding staff stuff to WikiLeaks. Because it is a unique opportunity to embarrass us, to embarrass our position, but also to undermine our relations with particular governments. For example, leaving aside the personal gossip about Sarkozy or Berlusconi or Putin, the business about the Turks is clearly calculated in terms of its potential impact on disrupting the American-Turkish relationship. This is criticizing the, the people around. The top leaders, Erdogan, Davutoglu, and so forth, and using some really, really very sharp language. But this is 250, it's a quarter of a million well, documents. Precisely. How easy would it be to seed this to make sure that it was slanted seeding, a certain Seeding way? it is very easy. I have no doubt that uh, WikiLeaks is getting a lot of the stuff from sort of relatively unimportant sources, like the one that perhaps was identified on the air. But it may be getting stuff at the same time from in interested intelligence parties who want to manipulate the process and achieve certain very specific objectives. Do you have that concern? Um, obviously, it would always be a concern. The, what we know, or what have been said publicly, is it looks like a data dump uh, through uh, a pretty junior level person. Um, so, in, in terms of that material, it looks like a data dump. Generally, in Washington, I've had the rule that if there are two explanations, one is conspiracy and one is incompetence, you ought to go with incompetence, you'll be right 90% of the time. Uh, but you can't rule out what uh, Dr. Rajinshi talked about, and if not uh, in the past, in terms of how we got here, it would be interesting, uh, and now having heard this, I suspect there will be some intelligence services thinking about maybe we could seed in these data dumps something that would be useful. You can't rule it out. But it, it has the appearance at this point of a core dump. For some reason, people get a thrill out of leaking classified documents. It's never, you know, it, it, it's whether it's a sense of self-importance, but I think it's more likely, uh, in terms of the volume, that that's what's at work. But you can't rule out, but particularly going forward, the kind of thing Dr. Bridget is talking Steve, about. Other foreign intelligence services don't have to wait for me to make that suggestion. <laughs> I think they can think of it themselves, particularly after the first instance. WikiLeaks says possible intelligence operation. All right, check mark on that one. Well, conspiracy theorists also believe that high-sounding talk about responsibility to protect and the isolation of Russia and China from the international community for holding out on the invasion of Syria is, in fact, high-sounding diplomatic rhetorical twaddle designed to distract the masses from the real goal of military intervention in Syria and regime change. If we act simply on the basis of emotion 
and sort of vague threats that the Russians have to be forced to be good boys, we're going to produce a region-wide outbreak in which the issues within Syria will become linked with the conflict between the Saudis and the Shiites, Iraq will become destabilized, Iran will be involved, the Israelis on the side are also interested in not having a particularly strong Syria, so they're watching carefully. We may have a breakdown of the negotiating process with Iran on top of it, and we're going to have a major international problem in our hands with political and economic consequences that are very serious. And what I hear is a lot of emotion and sloganeering, but I haven't heard what the secret plans that the White House is conceiving actually are, and how they're going to be implemented unless we get international cooperation on it. I think that emotion is proper at this point, given what the Assad government has done. They're going to be and, proper, and also, but they're not going to be effective. I rarely d disagree with Dr. Brzezinski also, but I think the issue here is Russia in many ways. And it's not just about Assad and Syria. That, that the Russians have become really ugly players uh, in the Putin incarnation. And it's a tremendous problem for the rest of the world. And this is a good place to address it, to try and marshal forces who stand for something different uh, than the kind of thugism of the old Soviet Union that is represented anew by Putin. Uh, and this is an opportunity to do it, not just through rhetoric. Now to do what? Well, I, I think, doc, Dr. Brzezinski, uh, not just through rhetoric. By, by the way, uh, this is Carl Bernstein speaking with you, Dr. Brzezinski. Yeah, well, I just want to know what are we supposed to do in order to right. force the Russians to behave like good boys? I think what exactly they, uh, you want them to I do? I think that we need to isolate them in terms of saying these are a people in a power that has come to stand for the wrong things on issue after issue, and we need the Russians to join the community of decent nations in terms and they don't? of their interests. And if uh, they don't, then what? I, I don't think it's about if they don't. I think it's about isolating them morally, and I think there's a well, great case to be made. Well, how do you isolate them morally? I think by saying this is unacceptable behavior in the United Nations. In the United Nations, I think that on the world stage, I think the President of the United States, I happen to agree to some extent without his geopolitical nonsense where Romney doesn't quite know the map of the world well, but I think Romney is right to talk about the Russians in terms of what a terrible force they have become toward really... Okay, so the solution using... to the Syrian problem is verbal denunciations of the Russians. Well, be my guest. No, I think so, it's an opportunity for us to isolate the Russians in their how are you moral going to isolate them from Are you going to break the Russian-Chinese connection? Are you going to get much of the third world to line up against the Russians on this issue? Many of them have, unfortunately, the same stake, which is in, in domestic authority and domination, which is not ugly, which is ugly, which is not nice. But, you know, the world is as it is just moralistic sounding off is not a solution to the Syrian problem. So, which uh, is more than just a Syrian problem, and that's the key point. If you I want agree. to set the region ablaze, go ahead and start really military actions on our own while condemning the Russians. That seems to me to be the hidden agenda here. 
Well, once again, we could go on and on and on with these types of clips, and by all means, I suggest you do go to your video viewing platform of choice and type in Brzezinski's somewhat difficult-to-spell name uh, to find out what other clips you can find of him talking about these and other similar issues, and I think you'll find that I have not really misrepresented Brzezinski or his positions in these clips, that in fact he very often talks about these exact types of subjects that the conspiracy theorists also like to talk about, and in largely the same terms. And so it is that we have a very puzzling phenomenon, because whereas you and I, if we were ever invited on one of these mainstream mouthpiece establishment corporate lapdog networks, uh, were to talk about some of these issues in these ways, we would be laughed off the air. We would be derided and berated and called all sorts of names and labels, including, of course, conspiracy theorist. But Zbigniew Brzezinski can go on these self-same establishment media mouthpiece sock puppet lapdog establishment corporate outlets and say the exact same things in the exact same ways and yet be lauded and praised and held up in veneration. Why is that? Why is there this double standard? Oh, that's right. It's because Zbigniew Brzezinski is not a conspiracy theorist. He is a conspirator. And thus more than qualified to speak on behalf of the establishment in the establishment's own obedient media outlets. But don't take my word for that. Take his. You mentioned something earlier that you've done that comes up right in the spot that you're sitting many times by our callers across the country. And that is a suspicion that there is a conspiracy put through the Trilateral Commission and the Council on Foreign Relations. You ran the Trilateral Commission for how long? About three years, I think. Something like that, three years. Not only did I run it, I helped to found it and organize it with David Rockefeller. So if any of our viewers are conspiracy-minded, here is one of the conspirators. It's funny watching someone try to hide an uncomfortable truth under equally uncomfortable laughter now, isn't it? Well, despite what the establishment mouthpiece media wants us to believe, I think we can all agree at this point that there are organizations of interest that do wield power behind the scenes and behind closed doors, out of earshot of the public, and different groups identify that in different ways, and those on the political left and the political right and the occupiers and the tea partiers and people of all political stripes and persuasions can agree that there are organizations of interest and insidious uh, insiders behind the scenes that do manipulate world geopolitics at this stage, and we don't have to go too far out on a limb to posit that trilateral co-founder, CFR member, Bilderberg attendee Zbigniew Brzezinski is one of that global globalist clique. But, of course, this raises the question, if he is a conspirator who is happy to identify himself as a conspirator, if even behind an uncomfortable laugh, and who often talks about these types of conspiracy theories as mere matters of fact rather than conspiracy theories to be denied it, de derided, it does raise the question, then, what is this conspiracy aiming at? What is he a conspirator of? What, what are they doing? What, what is this vision that they have, and what are they trying to achieve? Now, of course, we've talked about the formation and the drive towards one-world government and what exactly type of government these people are aiming at, but perhaps it's best to leave this to Brzezinski himself to explain for himself. And he did so... Well, quite clearly, I think, back 
last year in the January 25th episode of Charlie Rose. Yes, that's Bilderberger Charlie Rose to you and me. His uh, television program in which he interviewed Zbigniew Brzezinski. And, um, well, just as a little bit of a conspiracy theorist aside, any guesses on how Bilderberger Charlie Rose identified and introduced Zbigniew Brzezinski in that program? Dr. Zbigniew Brzezinski is here. He serves as National Security Advisor under President Jimmy Carter. He's also an author and professor of foreign policy at Johns Hopkins University. In a new book, he reflects on the global shift of power from west to east and America's role in the new world order. Imagine my surprise. Well, all right, then let's get to the meat and potatoes of this conversation, where Zbigniew Brzezinski outlines his vision for an American-dominated 21st century of global hegemony. So let's assume everything that you say is right about where we stand with the rest of the world. That's a pretty good assumption. <laughs> Why am I surprised you would say that? Uh, let's assume you are right in this case, okay? Um, so, so let's assume that the president then says, okay, I buy. You know, our, our relevance perhaps is not as strong as it was. Uh, the admiration of the rest of the world for us is not as strong as it was. We made some mistakes. Uh, we look at, the, at a part of the world that we have been a primary player, and they're now in pursuit of a different relationship uh, with each other, and they're agents of change we have no control over. Islamism bring one example of that. So what do we do to make sure that we build on what foundation we have. Well, obviously, this could take hours to explain, but let me make a very brief well, comment. Well, you try to explain One, in this book, yeah, by exactly, the way. Which is, you know, 200 pages of reading, which would take hours, <laughs> unless you're a very fast reader. One, we really have to try to help reconsolidate and revitalize the West, right. because alone, we are really no longer so dominant. And what do you mean by revitalize the West? Well, okay, that means engaging with it. First, oh, in dealing with as our problems partner. as a partner, yeah. and second, enlarging it, drawing in Russia, drawing right. in Turkey, because if they become part of the West, they are in effect becoming democracies. Would you draw Russia into the NATO? If they're ready, if they are a real democracy, then at some point, yes, a problem NATO would be necessary by right. then. But Russia cannot be part of the West unless it is really democratic, because that's the essence of the West. So we need a stronger West, which in a way is the spearhead for a more decent respect for human rights and decent governments around the world. Whatever other charges you can level at these people, you certainly can't blame them for a lack of ambition. And that is an ambitious goal for the 21st century, to not only expand, but to consolidate and make global the hegemon of the West through complete political, economic, geopolitical, social, and cultural uh, domination of the rest of the world. It is a very tall order indeed. But having said that, and having acknowledged the hubris from which such a quest, quest obviously springs, one can be forgiven for giving in to, uh, to a certain extent to the, the pessimism and the fear porn addicts in the crowd who would argue that it's basically a done deal. This plan has been unfolding for decades, if not centuries, pretty much unabated and even unquestioned by a public that has been cowed into submission because they're afraid to be called conspiracy theorists for even talking about these issues, let alone doing anything about them. Well, it does raise the question, what can possibly be done about this? Well, luckily, there is an answer and it is already being applied, although not nearly as often and as frequently as it should, but it is being applied even to conspirators like Brzezinski. 
Every year since 1954, a global think tank comprised of powerful corporations, world banks, presidents of the United States, prominent world leaders, and foreign policy builders, including yourself, have attended the Bilderberg meeting, where such contents of the meeting are held confidential to the public. So my question today is, as a member of the Bilderberg Group, can you please tell the public what the political leaders are discussing when they meet with the wealthiest business leaders of their respective countries, and whose interests are being served during these uh, private meetings, sir? Uh, well, let me give you two answers. Uh, the first answer is, uh, the purpose of these secret meetings is to devise more effective ways of sucking blood out of poor people, exploiting them, and sub subverting their identity and independence to foreign control. That's one answer. And no doubt, you should be very pleased with it. Now, there's a second answer. There's a second answer. First of all, I'm not a member of Bilderberg, contrary to your information. So, there's a steering uh, committee. Uh, excuse me, Madam no, Chancellor. There, there are a lot of people say, waiting. You can send me whatever you want, and please do. But okay, that's the matter. Is, and I'm speaking to the audience, not to you. So, time to keep quiet. So, you want to hey, hey, come, come on, come on. Come on. I have to ask you to leave. I'm not a member of the Bilderberg, and I haven't been attending these meetings. But there is a history of the Bilderberg, actually, who was organized in the late 40s by a group of Europeans who had experienced the Nazi occupation and who felt that Europe could not be stable without a closer European-American connection. And they do have annual meetings. It's usually about 50 or 60 people, most of them former statesmen. And they do have sessions. I attended two of these sessions in the course of these 65 years of experience of this organization. And the sessions are kind of interesting intellectually, but they don't involve any policy decisions, but are an attempt to fashion some sort of an Atlantic consensus of the issues that Europe and America faces. If you want to indulge in conspiracy theories, let me suggest another topic for you. No one mentioned conspiracies. And come back later. No one mentioned And that is the Tratato Commission. It was legitimate. The Tratato Commission is even larger than the Bilderberg and includes the Japanese, but has been similarly attacked mostly by the Arush people and others who more or less have these conspiracy theories which they pervade as much as they can. I wanted to ask you, why are you considered such a foreign policy genius when you supported Pol Pot, the Cambodian dictator, who killed a million of his people? I think you're daydreaming. No, look at this quote right here. I encourage the Chinese to support Pol Pot. Pol Pot was an abomination. We can never support him, but China could. You must have made that up. continue to lie about the Georgia Ossetian conflict. Russian conflict. You're a liar, you're treasonous, sir. Thank you very much. National sovereignty will prevail, and there will be no new world order, sir. Go, 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 go. Do you have a Columbia ID? Yeah. Yeah. Let's see it. Yeah. Sir, do you still agree with the statement that national sovereignty is no longer a viable concept, sir? Do you have a Columbia ID? Sure. That was in between, yeah. between two ages. Yeah. Let's see it. Yeah. Sir, not even the police oh, yeah. can get me to see ID, sir. I'll try here. Okay. We have DLF. Do you still agree with that? Hold on, hold on, hold on. Excuse me. Excuse me. Do you still agree with this, sir? National sovereignty is no longer a viable concept, sir? I say yes or no. It's simple. Why didn't you answer the question, sir? You look very guilty. In between two ages, 1970s, you know sir. You are, sir. Okay. National sovereignty is no longer a viable no, concept, sir. That's assault. You can't no, assault. Don't assault this gentleman. You look very guilty, no, sir. Aren't you assaulting this guy? You're not going to wow. get your war with this. Russia or China. There will be no new order. Not over, sir. It's not over. 
What an awe-inspiring thing it is indeed to see more and more citizens standing up and taking these issues to the conspirators themselves, the self-admitted conspirators, throwing these issues in their face and not letting them duck and dodge away from them as the softball corporate mouthpiece repeaters of the mainstream media all are designed, are there to let them do on a repeated basis. So it is a great thing to behold, and I can only encourage more people to get involved with this. Of course, it doesn't have to be in, under the banner of any particular group. You don't have to be a member of We Are Change or anything of that sort. All you have to be is someone who cares about these issues with, at the very least, a pad of paper and a pen, and hopefully with at least a video camera or a cell phone camera or something to record what you're doing and to show it to other people, because this is the type of confrontation that I think is fruitful because it truly does A, show the conspirators themselves that there is a growing and aware section of society that does care about these issues and is not intimidated by the conspiracy theorist label and B, it also uh, helps to motivate others to become aware and informed about these issues and then to take them out to the streets where people en masse are starting to get involved with these discussions. Discussions that go completely over top of the heads of the ridiculous pieces of fluff that we're given to talk about on a daily basis, the fiscal cliff and other such non-crises that have been manufactured in Washington for the distraction of the masses. And as the masses are starting to wake up to what is truly important and starting to question the people who are really involved in this, I think there is a definite turning of the tide. And once again, you do not have to take my word for that. Once again, we can turn to the conspirators themselves, including Zbigniew Brzezinski, for their own feeling about this. Now, as I'm sure you have probably all seen by this point, uh, there was a, a clip that was cir well circulated a couple of years ago of Zbigniew Brzezinski delivering a speech at the Council on Foreign Relations, or the branch thereof, in Montreal at a luncheon where he was talking about the global political awakening. If you haven't seen that clip, I'll put it in the show notes for today's episode, along with an op-ed that he wrote, for example, in the International Herald Tribune along the same lines. In fact, he's been talking about this issue over and over and over for the past few years because it seems to be a very important issue to him, this idea of a global political awakening. So let's take a somewhat more recent clip of Zbigniew Brzezinski talking about this very topic. Not surprisingly, the one-sided but peaceful victory of America over Soviet Russia gave birth to the brief but widely shared illusion that the 21st century would hence be the American century, with the United States acting as the world's benevolent hegemon. 20 years later, 20 years later, a truly comprehensive American global domination is no longer possible. That is so for several reasons. In recent decades, worldwide social change has experienced unprecedented historical acceleration, particularly because instant mass communications, such as radio, television, and the internet, cumulatively have been stimulating a universal awakening of mass political consciousness. The resulting 
widespread rise in worldwide populist activism is proving inimical to external domination of the kind that prevailed in the age of colonialism and imperialism. Persistent and highly motivated populist resistance of politically awakened and historically resentful peoples to external control has proven to be increasingly difficult to suppress. Talk about this issue of political awakening that you describe in the book, and you've done it in a, in a previous one, because I think this is a really crucial part of this new world we're going Absolutely. into. Everywhere you see the, 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 these stirrings that countries are more assertive, people are more assertive. Mm -hmm. You're absolutely right. I think this is the new phenomenon of our time. For the first time in all of human history, all of humanity is politically conscious and active and stirring and restless and resentful. That's a new reality. And that means that hegemonic domination by a single power worldwide is probably now impossible. Well, I have some good news and some bad news. And the good news is that, well, at least the, the people in these positions in the Bilderberg and the Trilateral Commission and the CFR and all of these other groups are increasingly aware that the public is aware of them and watching what they are doing. And the bad news is that these people are increasingly aware that they are being watched. So that creates a system where, they, well, it's probably better if they don't quite understand what's happening. But once they start to see that there is a global political awakening, of course, they will take steps to counteract that. And there are all sorts of different ways in which they are doing that. And I think we already know most of them, including, of course, the construction of the Panopticon, police state, big brother control grid, and the, uh, the attempts to clamp down on the internet and all of the things that we document here on a regular basis. But if there is anything hopeful to this, it is once again, the demonstration of the fact that merely having an engaged, aware, active population involved in these issues and taking them to these people and making things uncomfortable for them at their little pep rallies and book signings, etc., does have an effect and truly can help to steer the political and societal conversation in completely different ways. So it is hopeful at the end of the day. I think that there are things that people can be doing and they can be looking to groups like We Are Change and what they are doing as an example of the type of thing that can be done. And that's certainly not all that can be done, but it is an example. And it does show that it is having an effect. At the end of the day, whether it will be enough, well, that's a calculation that remains in the balance. And for the time being, we will be here on the Corbett Report documenting it. So that is it for the first episode of the Corbett Report podcast for the new year. As you'll see from the release date of today's episode, we are returning to the original release date of the Corbett Report podcast. Every Friday from now on, the podcast will be being released. And there will also be some different uh, amendments and additions and uh, extra little bits to the podcast that will be popping up in the next couple of weeks, with the first such one dropping next Monday. So for those of you who are subscribed to the podcast feed on CorbettReport.com, that will be arriving in your podcatcher on Monday. For those who are not subscribed, I hope you will. The RSS feeds, of course, completely free to subscribe to, and instructions are on CorbettReport.com slash subscribe. The Corbett Report is brought to you by you, corbettreport.com support. You can buy your DVDs or subscribe to my weekly e-newsletter. And on that note, that's all for today. So thank you for joining us. 
and I look forward to talking to you again next week. is brought to you by you your support makes the corbett report possible sign up for the subscriber newsletter or purchase a dvd at corbettreport.com support